Hi, guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is episode seven of the Improving Always podcast. And we're going to be talking about what I think is one of the most underrated skills to have as a professional athlete and obviously a professional uh, football or soccer player specifically, and that is decision making. So I will kick us off um, by saying that what I, one thing that I've noticed um, that, uh, you know, is that as you play at higher and higher levels, obviously players get technically better, uh, they get more fit. Um, there's a lot of things that change, a lot of things that improve, but the biggest change for me is that athletes make better decisions on and off the ball. That's what truly separates like, you know, good players from great players is their decision-making, at least in my opinion. And obviously, you know, we might have all, uh, all have a little bit of a different opinion on this, but we're going to talk about how important decision-making is. Um, you know, what good decision-making looks like, and then also how to improve your uh, decision-making. So we'll go into all of that um, starting right now. So anyone want to kick us off with, you know, uh, stories or just thoughts on how important um, making good decisions is on the, on the pitch? I just want to second the point that you made, Christo, about the biggest difference between the higher levels and lower levels being things such as decision-making, playing intelligent. Um, that was my experience, especially when I went into a pro indoor team was, is that the players seem to understand what they're doing. Their movements had purposes, their passes had purposes, and they worked as a team and as a unit opposed to as individuals that happened to be on the same team, which my experience playing lower level soccer, a lot of times it was individuals ha happened to be playing on the same team, not a cohesive unit. And once you get to the higher levels, you find players that are capable of playing as one team. And I mean, other than technical abilities, it really is the decision-making and soccer IQ that is the big difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, and I also like, there's this big misconception, whatever I bring up, you know, decision-making, it's like, oh, you need to pass more. You need to do this. No, it's not about that. Obviously, you know, at the end of most plays that you do, whether you're dribbling or just, you know, taking your first touch and then you do something like most of the time you're passing at the end of that play, but that does not mean that all I'm saying is pass the ball because uh, one thing I hate more than anything else is when players pass the ball and that pass accomplishes nothing. Um, if you have space in front of you, most of the time making a sideways pass is the wrong decision. Um, making a pass to put a teammate in the same situation you are or a worse situation is not a good decision. You, if you have space, you need to drive into that space. If you're in a one V one, and if you win that one V one, you're through on goal. You, unless you have a teammate in a better position, you need to take that one V one. Um, so, you know, it's not all about passing. It's just about making good decisions in, in whatever the, the given situation, uh, you know, is. Yeah. I remember my, uh, my coach, uh, like two years ago was telling, uh, we always had like team talks before practice. And this one might've been before a game actually. And he said, uh, the difference between players in the third and fourth division of Spain and players in the first and second division is decision-making and concentration in the first and second division. They're con they're concentrated and they're making the right decisions. 
99% of the time, a hundred percent of the time. And in the lower divisions, it's like 80, 75% of the time. So that's really just the main difference between everyone. Yeah. And I see a lot of videos where it's like, you know, the biggest change from, you know, low level to high level is speed of play. And I, I agree with that. Mostly. I remember um, when I was playing for IL, um, you know, the, uh, Academy, we hit a, we had a game against some of the, the, um, you know, the substitutes for the first team. Um, and it was like one of the craziest experiences because obviously they were so much better than us. Um, and I think, you know, we played like 30 minutes or something like we didn't play a full game or anything. Um, but it was just happened. Like they were training on this field. We were training on the other field. They had played a game before. So it was just the substitutes. So they had about like, you know, 15 guys or something. Um, and so we decided, you know, we just play the last 30 minutes instead of scrimmaging, you know, by ourselves, we just combine and play. Um, and in those 30 minutes, I think we lost like three zero or something. And our coach talked to us afterwards. Um, and he was like, you know, we lost. Okay. Most of you are like 16, 17. Some of them, some of the players were like 19 or 20, you know, the other, the players you're playing against, they are bigger than you. They are faster than you. They're stronger than you. They're more technical than you. It's, it's okay. You will get there. You have years to improve on that stuff. But what I was really pleased with is that your decision-making was good. Your speed of play was good. We were trying to do the right things. It's just that like, you know, in a, in a 1v1 situation, one of our players would try to take the 1v1. They'd usually lose it. And on the opposite side, when their players were taking the 1v1s, they were better players. So they'd win the 1v1s and they'd create opportunities through that, right? Like the passes were a little bit better, a little bit crisper. The first touch was a little bit better, but we were playing like to their level in certain ways. It just wasn't, you know, um, as, as kind of clean, uh, technically as fast, all of that. So yeah, speed of play you know, you can say speed of play is good, but like speed of play doesn't matter if you're making the wrong decisions. It's about playing quickly, but also making those, those good decisions and making those good decisions quickly. Cause anyone can make good decisions. If you had a, you know, a pause button to stop in the middle of the game, look around. Okay. All right. Now Maybe I know what to do. Press, <laughs> press, play. <laughs> press play. Well, you would hope you would hope, right. Hope. That, that most players would, uh, would be able to do that with time. The real trick is being able to do it in the moment. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it's just, just such an important, important skill. And that's what, you know, I feel will really take, um, you know, can take a good player and allow them to play at the high, at a, at a higher level. Going back to what you said about speed of play, I think it's kind of a little similar, right? Because speed of play is basically how fast you make those decisions, which is, mm -hmm. which is going back to decision-making, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just want to like bring that up. Like they yeah. kind of they go into one another. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah, I think the point Christo's making is is there are certain players that just kind of run around like a chicken with their head <laughs> cut off, and yeah, their speed of play is really really fast. It's just they're not making any decisions whatsoever. And what Christo wants to see is you making good decisions on a regular basis quickly, not just oh I get the ball I run real fast. And that goes to a point that I sometimes make with youth players when they hear the term speed of play, they hear speed and their brain turns off. And they think that means run fast. And there are plenty of examples of players who were not actually physically very fast, even at the highest levels, 
who had brilliant speed of play. For example, Zinedine Zidane is probably Xavi, the yeah, yeah. and their but their speed of play is elite of the elite, even at the top level. And it's because their brain is going a hundred miles per hour, even if their feet can barely run fifteen. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, like when when I you know started playing with with like way older players at sixteen, and I was playing on a men's team with like you know players who were like thirty five. I remember this one guy who was like um, pretty pretty out of shape. Um, <laughs> But, uh, well, I mean, he looked very out of shape and he was actually more in shape than you would imagine, but like, he just made good decisions, you know, like he just, he played center back and he was never going to ground. He was never, you know, going in for crazy, crazy challenges or anything. He was just always in the right place to pick up the loose balls, always in the right place to cover for teammates. Um, you know, he was, uh, all on the ball. He was always, you know, being intelligent with where he was going to pass, if he was going to drive forward, um, you know, intelligently like dropping off to create a, a backwards passing option, um, you know, and like uh, we can get into a little bit of like what is good good decision making. Um, for me, one of the biggest mistakes that I see players make is what I said before: making passes that accomplish nothing. Um, if you have space in front of you, and this is something like the most common thing you will hear me say if you see me coaching a game or a training session is hello what is it can can anyone guess hello one word <laughs> no Take it's your definitely space. not why be quiet i hate you all <laughs> <laughs> i mean basically a synonym of what noblet said but drive I want players to drive into space when it's there you need to attack the space i see like so many center backs get the ball and they pass sideways to the other center back when there's space in front of them. Now I'm not saying that you need to drive forward and take on 50 defenders as a center back, but like, you know, if you have space and you don't take it, it's going to be very difficult for your team to create anything. If you, as a center back, drive forward a little bit, pull the forward to you, play around them, you've just opened up so much space for your team. Obviously, even more so in more advanced positions. You know, if you were a center mid um, who only makes sideways and backwards passes, <clears throat> the most annoying player I've ever played with in my life. Um, but Dimitri, don't don't say his name. Um, <laughs> the, then the, you're not you're not doing much. You might be able to retain possession for your team, but um, you know. Obviously, there's other examples like passing to teammates when they're in, in better positions than you rather than in shooting and stuff. But the most common example I see is players making making nothing passes, which is kind of funny because most people think when I say good, make good decisions, it means pass the ball. It doesn't mean pass the ball. Um, you know, and, and, and another big one I see is um, players not taking 1v1s when taking that 1v1 would open up a lot of space. Um, you know, like I don't you'll lose some one V ones. That's fine. But the reason you're taking a one V one usually is because if you win that one V one, you're through on goal, you're free to put in a dangerous cross, put in a dangerous shot, a dangerous through ball, something like that. Like um, if you take one V ones at the right time, you know, winning them 50% of the time, maybe even winning them 30 or 40% of the time is still huge. It can still be huge for your team. Um, so what, what are other mistakes you guys see players make that, you know, make you, uh, rip out your hair. I want to just add on something that 
about that because it's something I really like is you don't put people into a box of what is a good decision, what is a bad decision. I see so many people saying that if you're in the defensive third, pass, 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 pass. You have no other option. You have to pass. And I think this is just very close-minded and is not really true to the fluid nature of the sport. Soccer is too fluid to have any one thing in your mind at any one time. There are times in the game where you're in your defensive third where the best option literally is to turn your man with them on your back. Now, that's probably rare, but I've been in options like that where like I had nothing else. I could kick the ball out for a corner kick or turn my man, and I preferred to turn my man. But you have to be able to make decisions on the fly and don't put yourself into boxes. And this is the one area where I say you do have to make sure that you have a high technical level and improve all your technical level, because I kind of see technical skills and to some degree, athletic ability as well as like little keys that open up new moves that you can do. And that allows you more options and more ability to make those decisions. And that might be why some of these slower players like Zidane, Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, can do more is because they're technically so efficient they could do what they wanted so it didn't have any closed doors in their brain for decision making if i can add on to what crystal said and what noble said about like playing with like, a closed box or like making useless passes in a defensive third or whatever whatever i think that can be a direct correlation correlation to playing scared right without confidence So you don't want to take those one v ones. You don't want to take those risks. Which also I want to bring up that in that way, confidence, training your confidence, whichever way that is for you, can actually improve your speed of play slash your uh, decision making. In my opinion, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Also, also maybe there are the players who are too confident. You know, <laughs> one player yeah, who sure. he'd get the ball in the midfield and then he'd dribble and he'd do like 12 step overs <laughs> and then he'd like look around and then you'd see no pass and just turn turn around and pass it back. And I was like, excuse me, uh, yeah. he's a really good player, but he'd do that like five times a game. And I was like, whoa, I, just calm down. <laughs> I had a player who I played with at Ampelonia Kos. And uh, in training sessions, when you were scrimmaging, he used to get the ball as a center mid and you dribble backwards and you would dribble to right in front of his goal. Um, and then he would like challenge people to like come win the ball from him. And he never lost the ball. He, he was he was an absolute monster. This guy, uh, he went on to play for some some uh, even higher level teams, but. You know, he was an absolute monster. Um, and, you know, we would have like two or three people, uh, you know, all trying to win the ball from him at once. And he'd be dribbling like, you know, a foot away from the goal line um, uh, before he, you know, and it'd be like three people would get on him before he would um, pass the ball away. Obviously not a good decision. And he didn't do that in games, but it was, uh, it was, it was pretty hilarious um, to watch. Um, I remember I made a TikTok a while ago about like, Someone said, like, how to build your confidence, make a couple simple passes at the beginning of the game, you know, play simply for the first 10 minutes. Absolutely not. I think like if you need to make simple passes to build up your confidence, you have no confidence. Like, I really think like, say you get the ball at the beginning of a game 
and you're in a great position to shoot. Like you're going to shoot. You need to like, you should shoot, right? Like, what are you going to do? Like turn around and pass the ball because that's simpler. Like you get you know, played I, through the goal and you turn backwards because yeah. you're too scared to take it off. <laughs> yeah. You know, better, and if you miss, better. if you miss, you miss, like if you take a one V one early on in a game and you lose that one V one, what you're never going to win another, another one V one. That doesn't mean anything, right? Like, not you know, it's not against Dimitri if he's playing fullback, mm-hmm. right? You won't win one regardless <laughs> of if you win. It's the, the match analysis that I did for you. That's actually, it was such a good match analysis. I had a couple of fullbacks who I talked to the other day on Discord and I was like telling them to go watch it. But it's so good because you don't get beat in a 1v1 a single time. It's actually goes, like, um, just and, delay, and you play, delay, delay. <laughs> like you play those one V ones, like so well, like obviously there's like other, other, um, stuff that I talk about, but like the one V ones, it's so perfect because you like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's just, I just thought it was funny. And that's like something that a lot of defenders struggle with a lot. Um, but you know, like you're not building your confidence when you're on the pitch, you're building it when you're off the pitch. And when you get on the field, you play with confidence, at least in my opinion. You know, some people might disagree with me. That's life. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's if you're on the field and you're trying to build your confidence, it's too late. <laughs> Something Dimitri said there with the delay, delay, delay. And this is probably one of the things that I see with defenders, which is bad decision making. And we have to talk about defensive decision making, too. 100%. Sometimes that actually matters even more than the offensive decision making. But he said, delay, delay, delay. And what does delay, delay, delay? It means I'm not going to rush in and just try to win the ball immediately. I'm going to be patient, stay in a good defensive position, and I'm going to wait for the attacker to either retreat or make a mistake myself before, or make a mistake themselves before I try to take the ball. And as, as a more attacking-minded player myself, what I really love are defenders that are not patient and want to try to win the ball because I normally force them into the mistake and I can take advantage of it. And when you're patient as a defender, um, maybe one of the best in the world at this right now, I'd say is Virgil van Dijk. I rarely yeah. see him. I rarely <laughs> see him just go into very, very rash challenges just for the sake of going into challenges. Like there's, you did a, video analysis of him in a 2v1 once and some yeah. people like got onto him and he what he did was is he basically took a in-between position of cutting off the pass and not giving the attacker the easiest shooting option and that was by far the best position and it was not the position most defenders would have done most defenders would have came in and they would have tried to win the ball immediately because they're in a 2v1 and they think the only way I can stop this is if I get in and get a tackle in. And that would have been the way that the I think it was Newcastle would have got an easy tap in. Was it Tottenham maybe? I think it was Tottenham. Yeah, yeah it was probably yeah. Tottenham. Yeah. I that like I've seen that clip a lot where they you know the 2v1 um defending is just like so good um and yeah that's like exactly what i say like if you're a fullback go watch that full match analysis i did of dimitri it is um you know uh like if you're a fullback specifically might be the best piece of content that i've ever put out that you could dimitri's watch dimitri's ego uh, is just getting <laughs> stroked <laughs> but um fantastic. what a fantastic he makes, he makes plenty of mistakes um but you know like every player does <laughs> um but the in the in the 1v1s it was really really good and like 
something that um, I say all the time uh, when I'm, you know, coaching uh, defenders or like coaching people how to defend is like when you're not in possession for the first five seconds, you're out of possession. Your goal is to win the ball back. After that, your primary goal is not to win the ball back. It's to keep them from scoring. And then your secondary goal will be to win the ball back. So yeah, obviously you want to have the ball. Okay. But if they have the ball and they're not creating anything, that's okay. And the chance will come to win the ball back. But first of all, you need to stop them from creating anything. If you're in a one V one defensively, the best thing you can do isn't win that one V one. It's not let that attacker even take the one V one. So you're backing off slowly. You're containing them. All right. And you force them like, Um, you force them to just turn around and play back because you're not going to give them the chance to take you on. Um, You know, when the ball is going to the winger, you get tight on them. You close them down as a fullback so that they either have to turn you with their first touch or they just have to play the ball back or play the ball inside or something. Rather than giving them space, they turn, they drive at you because that's what, well, hopefully if you're playing on the wing, that's what you love to do is get the ball, have space, you know, and run at a defender. That's when you're dangerous. Not if the defender is already on top of you and not letting you turn and not letting you drive forward, you know, like obviously good players can figure out ways around this, you know, play inside and make your little run and stuff. But like, if you can stop a winger from taking those one V ones, you've done your job. Like you've done really, really well. Uh, If you're forcing them to pass the ball around you instead, um, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Um, so, you know, delay, uh, I said delay, contain and stay with, you know, and also like when you get beat, you get beat, doesn't matter, but you still try to get back and put some pressure on, you know, uh, sometime attackers are going to have chances in every game to score goals. But if you, if you're an attacking player, you know, that if you have a chance and there's no pressure on you, you know, that like no defenders anywhere, it, it can be a lot easier, um, unless you get inside your head, of course, but like, you know, that's a, uh, you know, objectively it's easier. Whereas like if a defender is trying to get there and close you down, is trying to get a foot in to block your shot, even if they don't actually do it, that little bit of pressure um, can make you rush the shot, can make you miss, you know, um, it, good decision-making is, comes in all different, uh, you know, forms in possession, out of possession. Um, there's just so much that, uh, that goes into it, not, not to overwhelm anybody, but you know, there's, uh, tons of different ways you can make uh, good decisions. And on that tons of different ways to make good decisions, I would say this is one of the other aspects that really separates high level soccer from lower level soccer is decision making offensively when you're off the ball, not mm-hmm. just when you're on it. Because when you look at really, really low level soccer, most players stand when they're off the ball yeah. and they wait for their turn to get it where you watch the highest levels of soccer, the most active players are oftentimes the people off the ball. For one, you can run faster when you're off the ball than when you're on it. And two, the defense is normally a little bit more aware of the guy who's on the ball, so they're not just going to let him dribble through. I mean, I might do that anyway. but Mm. So you really need to understand how to make runs, how to be deceptive, how to create space for your teammates, not necessarily even for yourself. And this is probably one of the more difficult things for players to pick up. It's one of the things I've at least found harder to coach to players in the past. I don't know if Chris or Dimitri or SK have similar experiences with that. 
um, so for like off the ball movement. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. And What's like, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll second, I'll second that. Uh, well, I'll tell you how I make it fun for players. Um, but I'll second that with like, um, the, uh, you know, um, players standing still, but also like when they do move, they move in straight lines, you know, they run just straight forward or straight this way or whatever. Um, you know, you need to add, you know, creativity and, uh, unpredictability to your movement off the ball. You know, you have to come close, go far, go far, go, go, close, go this angle. way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, like they, these are the runs that great players are making. They're not just running in a straight line. Um, as in terms of like coaching off the ball movement, um, when I do sessions focused on off the ball movement, I often, you know, start with something like handball or, um, you know, I do like two V twos with a ball in the air, um, which a lot of players enjoy, um, you know, and, and also it lets people focus, um, you know, especially with, um, with lower, with lower level teams. Um, you know, if you have an advanced team, maybe you don't have to do it. I, I do sometimes just because it's fun. Um, yeah. but especially with, um, with teams that are a little bit lower level, you know, like, you, it's easier to catch a ball than it is to take a take a great first touch, right? Walking soccer too. Oh, where yeah. you're only allowed to walk, and what walking soccer actually the beauty of walking soccer is is it takes away one athletic advantages people have, and two it slows the game down in a way that allows you to be able to pick your head up and make those decisions. So you basically it's basically kind of like having training wheels. You put on your training wheels, learn how to ride then you take the training wheels off eventually and that's returned to the real game. And I think that's really helpful. Oh, I just kind of wanted to bring this up because I was nerding out last night on Johan Cruyff's Instagram uh, and all the little qu quotes. Some of them I love, some of them I are okay on, some of them I hate. But one of the ones I love is you're only on the ball about three minutes per game. And what matters is the 87 minutes off the ball. And that really, in my opinion, is one of the things that separates a very high soccer IQ from a lower soccer IQ is most people think the only thing that matters is when the ball's at their feet. And no, I mean, what matters is how are you helping your team, even if you're not touching the ball, even if you're not involved, even with most plays, maybe, maybe you're a very skillful attacking player, but the other team knows that so they're going double hard to mark you but you have upped your ability to move off the ball to where you're creating space for your teammates that you maybe wouldn't if they weren't doubling down trying to cut you out of the game I mean, so everything has an impact on the game as long as you stay engaged and stay trying to be creative even if you're not the one on the ball yourself yeah and like the goal are... go go ahead d no, I was just gonna say those are the most important movements that you make all game. The ones that you're that you don't get the ball probably, so so influential in the whole game. And yeah, that also my, reminds me of my yeah. my favorite Johan Cruyff quote when he was asked if he allowed his players to smoke when he was coaching Barca, and he was like, "If they were as good as me, I'd let them." But, <laughs> but that's yeah, great. That, bring, that brings up a point. Um, in one of my last pro indoor games, um. I didn't score or get an assist, but I made a run that opened up the pass to my teammate who did score. Timo Werner. And yeah, so it was – so, I mean, it's something that, like, unless you get into extremely in-depth data analysis, 
most people will, it will go completely unnoticed. And even some coaches, it would go unnoticed, but I noticed it and my teammate noticed it because he saw me leave that space and he immediately entered that space because I took a defender with me and he had an open shot on goal because of it. Yeah. And like the goal of off the ball movement, a lot of players like think about it the wrong way. It's not to get the ball. It's to open up space. And then if you get the ball, great, but like, you know, it's, it's to pull defenders out of position. It's not to necessarily get the ball. You need to make those runs. Even if you're hundred percent sure that you're not going to get the ball, the defenders aren't. Um, so you need to, you need to make those runs. I don't care if you know that your teammate has never passed, you know, salt at the dinner table, let alone the soccer ball in a game. Like, you know, it's, uh, you, you still need to make that run. Um, and, and one other thing I'll say is, um, this is going way back, but when you're talking about, uh, Virgil van Dyke's, um, you know, uh, challenge in the, in the two V one that he defended successfully as the one defender, um, you know, uh, like talking about decision-making again, like the, um, uh, one thing that, um, I hear, uh, coaches say all the time is like, you need to make, um, you know, conservative decisions, not take any risk in your defensive third, and you need to take risks in the opposition, opposition third. But I don't think that's true. You need to take risks when you need to take risk, right? Like in a two V one as the defender, who's taking the risk, the defender has to, you know, you need to try to um, make that situation a a one V one instead, maybe by like blocking the pass and letting the opponent have a little bit of space and then putting in your challenge rather than, you know, in, as as an attacker in a two V one, you're not going to take risk. You're going to drive at the defender, pull them to you and then make the pass. Or if they block the pass, you're going to go yourself, right? Like that's not risk. You're not, what you're not going to do is like drive at the defender, your teammates wide open right there and take the one V one instead. Probably. Um, you know, like, uh, it's, it's not about, um, you know, there's not like a good decision to make in this situation and not in this situation. Like it's all, it's all fluid and, you know, defenders take risk all the time and attackers sometimes don't have to play with risk to, to score goals. You know, it's all about the situation you're in. That reminds me of your least favorite Johan Cruyff quote. Do you remember it? Cause I remember you made a story post on Instagram about it. Oh no. What was it? It was football is the game of mistakes. The team that makes the least mistakes wins. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> I can probably, like, if I could talk to Johan Cruyff, I, we could probably come to an understanding. Well, but, yeah. Well, what I noticed, I mean, I love Johan Cruyff. I mean, he's a legend of the game. But what I noticed with the quotes, especially out of context yeah. quotes, is one, a lot of them are brilliant. Some of them are, like, really obvious. And some of them just don't make any sense whatsoever. (laughs) They're contradictory to his other quotes and even contradictory just to the way he played himself. Cause I mean, one of the things that he helped revolutionize the game with was what was known as total football. And he has another quote, which I really love is I like to turn things on its head. I like to tell my goalkeeper, he's the first attacker. And I like to tell my striker, he's the first defender. And he really revolutionized the idea of players playing as soccer players, not as I am a striker. I am a defender. I am Mm -hmm. a midfielder. I am a goalkeeper in the very robotic fashion that maybe some other countries played at that time. But then you randomly find the ones like 
game is about mistakes. And it's like, Johan Cruyff wasn't setting up Ajax for Barcelona to defend and not make mistakes. (laughs) He wanted them to outplay the other team. (laughs) That was, those were the quotes when his nicotine levels were just like way over what, what they should have been. He doesn't even remember saying them, you know? Yeah. Like, um, uh, maybe like defensive mistakes, maybe, you know, but like on the ball, the thing, like I, I often see like teams that win probably misplace more passes teams that win probably miss more chances. Like um, obviously it depends on the game, but like when I'm watching at least like I do this better for like individual players. Cause I do some like uh, player player evaluations and stuff like for individual players, I rarely like um, penalize players for making mistakes on the ball. Often the players I rate the highest are players who make a lot of mistakes because they are, you know, on the ball a lot. Um, So like percentage wise, they might not be making like a mistake, like half the time, but like, if you get the ball three times and you mess up once, like, you know, that's not, that's not great. But like, if you get the ball, like, you know, 50 times in a, in a game, um, and you make a couple mistakes, you'll probably make 10 mistakes. Like you probably make more than that, honestly. Like, uh, especially if you're, if you're a very attacking player, right? Like, especially if you're a winger, if you're taking one V ones, you might lose half of those. I'm not going to penalize you for that. Um, you know, unless the defender, like, I don't know, this has no legs or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like going back to, what Croy said, like the quote about soccer is a game of mistakes. I think the main thing he meant by it is the team that makes the less mistakes while still implementing the risks and the decision-making that you need to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, while people, when they see that quote, they instantly go to playing sim- simple and always playing the safe way instead of actually taking risks because that does reduce the mistakes, but it just brings your team down overall, in my opinion. Yeah, that's where the context of Cruyff's overall career comes into play. But the problem with just out-of-context quotes is people will post the quote and be like, see, Cruyff said so. You should play (laughs) defensive and never go forward, never take a risk, and then you'll win the game. It's like, are most goals caused at least by a partial mistake somewhere on the field? Probably. But some goals are also a piece of brilliance by a brilliant player. I mean... If Messi dices two defenders just because he's Messi, are we going to say that's a mistake by the other team? I probably not. I'm probably going to point out that better. Messi's really, <laughs> really good. Messi's really yeah. hard to stop. Yeah, but, like I say that when when teams can see or like when my teams can see goals like from like incredible long shots, and it's just like you know, throw your hands up. What are you going to do? Like he hit top bins from 30 yards, like. I don't know, like if it's, if it's that good a shot, you know, like what should someone have closed him down a bit quicker? (laughs) Maybe, but you know, most goals are scored because of mistakes, but there are goals where it's like, you know, we defended well, but not, not well enough to prevent that. Look at my repertoire of goals, you know, just all. Yeah. And stop them if they tried. And something I think a lot of people underestimate is how much, chance is involved especially in the penalty area where things can go crazy and be just very very chaotic and you could be defending very very well on a cross or play in the penalty area it just takes an odd deflection is that a mistake you could argue it's a mistake that your attempt to block the shot didn't send it into 
out for a corner kick, but it actually put it into the top corner. But I think that's kind of a harsh thing to say is that that's a mistake and not partially just chance as well. And unfortunately, chance does play a role in this sport. Like the best teams, of course, create their own luck, but luck still is part of the game. Because if it wasn't, we would never see any upsets ever. Only the best teams would win every single game. You would never have an upset. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's something I, I say all the time, like results-based analysis is like the most toxic thing in the world. Like um, you cannot base, like you cannot say I made a good decision because I scored. That's not how it works. You like, you can shoot when the right decision was to pass and you score that doesn't make it a good decision and you should still recognize that the decision wasn't a good decision and you should pass next time you know in the long run you make good decisions you'll be more successful uh you know it, everyone gets lucky at times everyone makes bad decisions and things work out um but you know like if your team uh wins a game that can hide a lot of mistakes that you made and maybe the coach is just like you know we won that's all that matters Absolutely not. You know, if you lose a game that might expose a lot of uh, the mistakes you made, does it necessarily mean you played horribly? Absolutely not. You know, you don't base your analysis of a, of a situation based on if things worked out or if they didn't, you have to actually analyze that, you know, those situations. And I think like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. But you can finish if you want. I don't mind. No, no, go ahead. All right. That's kind of what's, I think, what's been happening at United, right, in the Champions League where they make a lot of mistakes during the game and then, like, last second, Maguire scores a header, like, Ronaldo basically pulls them out and wins the game for them. I thought you were yeah. going to say Maguire pulls off the one goal or something. I was going to be <laughs> like, the, wait a mis- minute, is wait the mistake, a minute. Is the mistake not sacking their coach? <laughs> that... This actually brings up an interesting point, though, because you're talking about results-based analysis. And while I don't think results-based analysis is completely useless, I just think it's useless in the way 99% of people use it, which is your, maybe your past 10 games. If in your past 10 games you lose five, draw three, and you only won two, everyone's going to be pointing the finger that you're doing terribly to where a better results-based analysis would be a full season at least. And what I would say is, is most teams are very quick to fire managers on one bad streak of form. And they think that this is going to solve their problems. And usually it doesn't. And what they actually see typically happen is whoever the new manager is, has a good streak of form immediately because typically teams kind of peak and valley with their form anyways. And so they valleyed when the manager got fired. Then they'll start peaking with the new manager, and then they'll go right back to that valley. And they haven't even assessed the actual problems with the team because they just changed the guy who they put the blame on. And maybe this is boardroom decision-making that's wrong and not on the field, which is probably what matters more for our players. But it is something to look at when you're looking at any type of data analysis on results or anything like this. Don't look at one or two pieces of evidence. You need to have a larger sample size of evidence to actually 
come up with a good decision and come to good conclusions. Yeah. Looking at like things like expected goals rather than like actual goals that actually can be like super helpful to like realize like how a team is uh, or, and like expected goals conceded, obviously to see like how a team is playing in general, um, uh, you know, and teams that, um, you know, have really high expected goals, but they don't actually score um, those goals. Like, but like, you know, I, I do believe like the, the goals will come and maybe, you know, in some situations you need a different coach to get that. Sometimes maybe in a certain situation, you need the players to do something differently. Um, but, you know, if you're, if the team is playing well, that's, you know, uh, long-term, that'll be more important than winning a couple games in the, in the short term. And it's important to not let like, you know, your decision, decision making get clouded by, you know, a couple bad results or a couple good results. Right. Yeah, someone scores a wonder goal in an important game and you forget that they're actually a defensive midfielder that only passes sideways and that was the first shot they've taken in an entire year. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good uh, transition into like kind of what you can do to, um, you know, train decision-making. I get asked this question a ton uh, because I talk about decision-making a ton. And um, the obviously the most important thing is experience playing with uh you know and playing especially with good players players who are better than you um is the is the best thing that thing that you can do and especially like um i think um players you know playing like small sided games like with really high level players even like 2v2 3v3 5v5 whatever it is um you know that that stuff uh, trains decision-making because you're always on the ball. You always have to make decisions. You have to make them quickly because space is small. Um, you know, if I had to pick like one thing to improve your decision-making, it would be playing small-sided games with good players. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Uh, decision-making is where like, where it's very limited on the ways that you can improve it. Like for everything else, you can kind of improve it on your own by individual training or whatever. But uh, decision-making is something like that. You can't really train it on your own. You have to find a group of people or, people or just players to play with, which is why like, team training is so important, right? Uh, I mean, you could maybe make an argument that individual training uh, increases your technical ability. And then with that technical ability, you can make a better choice or even game analysis maybe. But yeah, I mean, for me, I have the same answer as Crystal, which is like, just, just play with better players even to get that experience and make better decisions. Yeah, yeah. I think you can, I mean, you can also talk to your coach, see, see what he thinks you should do in certain situations that you're unsure of if you're making the right decision. Uh, talk to other players who play in your position who are better than you. Uh, see what they say about or it. even if they uh, don't play in your position right like goal yeah. like a goalkeeper will help a lot with like you know defensive position as well yeah and uh, yeah besides that just keep training as much as you can <laughs> with other people yeah yeah and i just want to second the point about small-sided games and futsal even guys please play futsal if you have the opportunity to futsal is I, if you want to be ronaldinho neymar messi any of these guys these guys played futsal as their as kids and it's very common among South American players and probably fairly common among Spanish players as well. But in small-sided games, there is no hiding. You have to play and you have to be involved. You cannot hide off into the corner and just not 
play a part in the game so no one sees you make mistakes. You have to be involved. You're always going to be on the ball at one point or time. You're always going to be defending at one point or time. So it forces you to actually be able to try to play and you have to be able to make decisions on the fly and it will improve your technical skills vastly. And to the point SK was making, um, yes, unfortunately, this is probably the aspect that is the hardest to train individually. However, there are certain things you can do. And the biggest one is the point you made, improving your technical abilities. Like I said, it's like getting a new key that opens a new door into your decision making. But other things you can do is be creative. Recreate types of opportunities that you might see in a game. So, for example, one of the favorite things I like to do when I train is I like to play the ball to the air, bring it down, and try to cur- cut and turn at an angle that would be realistic as a striker cutting to turn to try to shoot. I do things like that all the time. If you have a wall to play on, practice playing the ball into the wall, checking your shoulder, and turning. There are certain things you can do. It's not exactly game-like, but unless you're in a game, nothing is a hundred percent game. Like it's always a simulation of a game. Yeah, definitely. Um, the two things I would say for individual training, um, you know, are, um, obviously, you know, do the team sessions if you can, but you can train decision-making in a way in individual sessions. Um, I don't like, like exactly what Noblet said. I don't like, um, you know, training, passing, training, shoot, shooting, training, dribbling. You need to add these things together to make it game realistic, right? Like there's a time and a place to um, train just one specific thing. But I think like the, the majority of your training should be adding different things together. So dribbling into shooting or, you know, first touch into dribbling into shooting, first touch into passing, whatever it is, um, you know, and you have to push the intensity, right? If you just go through the motions, that's not going to help that much because in a game, you need to be doing things quickly. If you train yourself to do things like very, very slowly in all of your training, it's not going to translate to games. You need to push the intensity, which is hard when it's just you sometimes, but you know, it, it definitely is possible. And then, um, uh, any, anything else on individual training? This so, is also when you should be creep. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, just one thing I mentioned earlier, um, also confidence, like I said, if you're not as confident, you probably will be, won't be making the best decisions. You'll just be making the safest decisions for yourself. That's it. Yeah, 100%. And the point I was going to be is this is your time to be creative. Um, if you see a trick that you saw a professional player, even a street soccer player, anything do, and you say, hey, I want to try this, I want to do this these individual sessions are the perfect scenario to try these tricks. And it reminds me of a point. Um, I think you or I made a video. Something's like somebody commented, don't try a rainbow in a game. It won't work. It was like, hell yes, I'm going to try a rainbow in a game. I've done it in a game and I've been successful with it in the game. And I wouldn't have been successful if I wasn't practicing it on my own. And these are, I mean, yeah. A point that you've made, Cristo, many times is like the only thing that really takes to beat a defender is change of pace and change direction. But these creative little moves can create that change of pace and change of direction in ways that can deceive defenders and surprise people in ways that maybe a simple inside of the foot cut won't do. And the only time you're going to be able to really practice these as hard as you can 
are going to be your individual sessions. And if you want to be a, I mean, there are professional players that play very simple and they are there because mostly they just do the simple things really, really well. But normally those aren't the best of the best players. They're not your Messi's. They're not your Neymar's. They're not your Cristiano Ronaldo's. These guys have a little something special and you don't get that little something special unless you train these special abilities and they do that and you see that in their performances in the game yeah like the more the more times you've made a pass if you made a pass like hundreds of times in a week like when the game comes you're going to be confident you, you know you can do it if you've taken a thousand first touches that week you know you can do it when the game comes and if you haven't then you're not going to be as confident and it's it's not going to it's probably not going to work out as well. Um, other things for like uh, technical training, moving a little bit away from, you know, individual sessions is like, I've done a lot of uh, experimenting with like how to do small sided games. Obviously I'm a huge fan of futsal, played a lot of futsal myself, uh, coach a decent amount of futsal. Um, and I love futsal, but um, I always play small sided games every, every single session I do. Um or probably 95 plus percent of the training sessions I do. Um, and I see a lot of people like, you know, it's the same small sided game every time. Um, I, I love putting athletes in different, uh, putting players in different kinds of situations in small sided games. So I experimented a lot with, you know, playing diagonally instead of playing, you know, with the goal, with the goals in corners rather than just on the sides of the field in the middle, um, done a lot of, you know, playing to gates instead of playing to goals. So, you know, kind of mimicking like playing in the middle of the field and creating space and then driving into, into the gate, driving through the gate. And that's like, you know, we're into the next passage of play. Um, my favorite small sided game right now, um, you know, obviously, I'm not saying like it's the the best one that you should only play, uh, but is to play diagonally. And what I do is I make it kind of like a, you know, a murder ball where the ball never goes out. So I'll put players around the outsides of the field. If the ball goes out, you toss the ball on. Um, usually uh, what I do is I have three teams and I put one team on the outside. Um, so one on each side of the field. If it's like a four V four, uh, if it's a five V five, then we have an extra, they can collect balls. Um, you know, and they each have a ball in their hands. If the ball goes out on their sides, they put a ball in play, go get the one that went out. Um, and if a goal is scored, I have everything changes. So the team that got scored on goes on the outside. The team that um, was on the outside goes and defend the, defends the goal that wasn't scored on. The team that scored gets the ball out of the net, turns around and now attacks the opposite way. Um, just because like, I think like keeping the ball in play all the time, adding in changes like you know, every, every, every goal that's scored a new team is playing uh, and we're playing in a different direction. I think like that stuff, it's not to train their technical ability better, but it's to make them make quicker decisions, make them get used to things constantly changing. Um, you know, and like, I love training decision-making and small sided games make you make a lot of decisions. And I just want to even make them make even more <laughs> and even more decisions uh, because, you know, that's, uh, you know, something that I think is, uh, is very important for players. That's funny because here in Spain, it, it's like all small sided. Um, mm -hmm. but, and there are so many different variations, but we always, with every team, we'd always hate if it wasn't just regular, like three V three, four V four, five V five. And if there were like random rules, everyone would just be so annoyed the whole time. <laughs> My players so loved it. I don't know. I, I should come run a session, uh, in hey. Spain. 
But but something to that point about how Spanish it's always small sided. Um, this is a big difference between the current American mindset for soccer and a lot of the countries that are ahead of us right now is a lot of Americans think if we're not playing 11 v 11, we're not playing the real game. And that's just not really true. And I think it's an area where a lot of Americans are missing out on it. It's like, if you play small sided, you're going to get it better, better that. And when you play small sided, like it is actually like the real game, the real game could be broken down into a bunch of three V three, four V four situations. It's not like the real game is complete. It's not like the real game is chess and small sided is checkers. These are, they're much more closely related. And I think this is something that coaches need to do more often is like when they scrimmage, like even if you have like two games of four V four going on at the same time or something like that, instead of having one larger side game, sometimes that's even better. Now there is one, one rule restriction, and this is probably the most common rule restriction that I've experienced as a player and seen coaches do one touch, two touch. I was going to get to that. It, it's, I'm not going to say there's not a pl- time and a place for it, but I absolutely despise it because un- unlike every other restriction, it's just closing off a door because now I'm not allowed to dribble when I have space. And you know what? Defenders recognize that. I've never played a two-touch game where a defender gets on me because they think I can dribble. They always stand off you and give you that space because they're making a good decision themselves because you only have two touches. You're not going to dribble. And I think a lot of coaches really just kind of dogmatically stick to two touches is better. That makes you play faster. It's like, it doesn't make me play faster when I have space in front of me and I can't run. It makes me play slower because now I have to stop and pick a pass and it's probably going to be a negative or simple pass because it's harder to do that when I can't Drive dribble forward, and yeah. create space. Yeah, I uh, go ahead, D. Uh, I was just going to say it's funny because here the only when I was playing with uh, Naval Carnero and we got promoted that season from the fourth to the third division, the only time we ever played eleven v elevens was Thursdays at the end of a session, and it would be six minute halves. And we just played two halves. <laughs> and that's the only time we ever trained 11 v 11s. Yeah. I, I think we all hated it. Training 11 v 11 is, uh, you know, you get the ball less. Like why, like better to play even like 7 v 7 or 8 v 8 on like, like half field, you know, like something like that. Um, and just do like two games at once. Right. Or have the other, you know, have mm-hmm. the other players play like a small sided game on their own. Usually that's what I'd do. Um it's funny about the the touch rule because I rarely tell players to take less touches. Usually I do it individually. So I will tell an individual player, you only have two touches or whatever it is. And then also I often, I do five touch more often than I do one or two touch because I want players taking more touches because that's the decision they're making badly is they're not taking enough touches usually um, rather than taking too few. I've actually done that more often than I told a player, you need to take two touches. Although I do occasionally, if a player is never passing the ball, I say, you know, two touch, three touch, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I've seen players that panic every time they get the ball and their coaches still put them in games and say, you have to use two or less touches. And it's like, 
Well, they panic every time they get the ball. So they're already giving it away in two or less touches. It's just their pass is always to almost no one. So you're actually just feeding into the problem instead of making them better. It's that type of player. I'd almost say you have to dribble five touches. Now, I normally don't tell players they have to dribble five touches or something like that. But like, I think what a lot of people forget with this is, yeah, when you look at the highest levels, it is usually two to three touches maximum, but that's not because they wouldn't take more touches if they could. It's because normally at that level, the defenses are sophisticated enough and they need to play so quickly that the best option usually is passing within two to three touches. But like I said, you're not going to have Lionel Messi if Lionel Messi can't dribble. Because, I mean, that's probably yeah. the thing he's absolutely Only two touches, Messi. Come on. Messi, come on. <laughs> yeah, anyone who tells Messi to do two touches should be fired on the spot. That's the one time I'd be very quick with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, and uh, one um, one other thing that I thought um, was uh, that I was I was talking with, a, with another coach about um, the other day. Um, we will have to wrap this, uh, this episode up before I get into my whole spiel about, uh, video and match analysis. Uh, we'll do another episode on that. Cause I could talk about that for a while as well. Um, but I'll, uh, yeah, one, one more thing I wanted to say before we get to like the, uh, closing things out is, um, there was a, so I was, I was looking at a, at a, st- um, a study, um, some, some coaches did, um, on like decision-making in, in soccer. And uh, it was funny because smaller athletes at the youth level always have better decision-making, not always, but like most of the time, because they don't have those physical advantages of being like bigger and faster and stronger. Um, So, you know, when you see a lot of these great players like Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, who make really good decisions on the ball, Busquets, who's, you know, it's not very short, but he's always been like very, also slower players, physically slower players. They can't use their pace to escape bad situations. Yeah. So those players often make better decisions. Um, and you know, that's, it's not a coincidence. Uh, it's because they are forced to make better decisions. So if you're watching this in a young and you're a younger player, um, and you know, you're slight or whatever, and you think that of that as a disadvantage might actually be your biggest strength. And on the flip side, if you're very big, very fast, very strong, um, you know, make sure that you're not Um, make sure that you're, you know, if you analyze your own play and think about areas you need to improve on, you're not thinking like, oh, you know, if you're faster than everyone, you know, at some point, they're probably going to start catching up to you and you'll lose a little bit of that advantage. Make sure you're not only relying on your speed. You should also develop your technique and, you know, other things and, um, you know, make sure you're developing your decision-making as well. Mm. That reminds me of uh, what Noblet said about, Walking soccer, like it, it removes the physical aspect of the game more and focuses more on actually decision making. It's yeah, a good point. Sure. Walking soccer is a lot of fun too because everyone <laughs> looks insanely awkward and they're giggling while they play. And I mean, that's that's another thing is like soccer has to be fun. Ain. Put a dollar put, in the put, in the fun yeah, jar. Put, <laughs> in the fun jar. And like the other thing is is. We have to mention it because we never mentioned it. When you get in the zone is when you make the best decisions because you quit overthinking things. And in my opinion, the best way to get in the zone 
is to start having fun. I mean, Ronaldinho Gaucho used to play with a smile on his face every single game. And that was how you knew Ronaldinho was in the zone, is he was smiling, enjoying himself. He would do his little flair and his no-look passes. And that's when his decision-making was at his best. He had all the mental blockers leave his brain, and he just played. And that's something that I think a lot of players need to do because they always have something in the back of their head telling them, I can't do this, or I should do this, or I shouldn't do this, or what will coach think if I do this? And you need to put that behind you and remember that you have to have fun and play. And sometimes when you just put some of that pressure to the side and play, you'll make better decisions automatically without even really thinking about it because you're not overthinking about it yeah 100 percent. all right any any other uh any people want to pitch in any last uh thoughts um now that i'm on the discord everybody go join the discord and if you got this far in the episode tell me what your favorite rodent is in the discord (laughs) <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I'll, I'll put mine in there. Um, yeah. So like I said, I didn't get to talk about uh, match analysis, which is something I think is huge for decision-making as well. Um, but that can maybe be its own topic. Uh, and I'm not going to get into it now and make the podcast, you know, two hours long because um, we've all got places to be. Um, but uh, yeah, decision-making is hugely important topic. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on this again in future episodes, maybe do another episode on it at some point. Um, yeah, so, uh, quick shout outs, definitely join the discord I'm doing, um, you know, I'm hopping on the, on voice calls and on discord to talk with, uh, basically anyone who wants to, um, every night this week, uh, obviously it's the episode like, will it's be just a po- gone. It's just like a, a exclusive podcast. I'm going to try, <laughs> I'm going to try to record it um, and, and, and post some, but like, yeah, I know like, um, yeah, it's uh, so definitely do that. Um, obviously, you should be following all of us on social media um, if you know what's good. Um, you know, Noblet finally got himself a, a sweatshirt <laughs> to wear, uh, but I'm sure he still appreciates some merch. Um, mm. So yeah, um, we'll we'll make sure we get everyone everyone a little a t-shirt at least they can wear for the podcast. Um, but yeah, uh, make sure you follow us. Uh, sub to me on Patreon if you want to watch the episodes a little bit uh earlier and um yeah all good all right sounds good decisions everybody all right peace uh we'll see you next time (laughs) (laughs)